Good afternoon and welcome to the Jason Ranch Show on AM 770 KTTH on this not-so-dreary Friday. I looked outside. It's not, at least here, it's not all that dreary. We are, of course, streaming on all those smart speakers like Amazon Echo and Google Home. A woman got arrested in Tumwater. That's not normally a story, except she got arrested four hours after being released from jail. And that is the story, and that is what's trending. What's trending? Crime. So let's introduce you to a new criminal, alleged. A woman who, on two consecutive mornings, went back to the same business in Tumwater, a Chevron Mini Mart, the one on Cleveland Avenue, and caused a whole lot of damage both times. She was arrested and booked between those two incidents because we have a prolific offender problem. In this case, kind of sounds like we're talking about someone who's dealing with mental illness. According to police, they say Monday morning, 3 a.m. They say this woman broke into the mini mart. She smashed out windows. She smashed smashed out those um, those glass coolers with a baseball bat. And according to one of the employees, Jay Kim, she said their owner estimated the damages are going to exceed $15,000. I feel really, um, like, angry. She should feel and angry mad. and mad. Because after spending about 18 hours in the county jail, according to Kicking Five, she was released. She was released Tuesday night, 1023, according to King Five. And then just about four hours later, just a little bit after 2 a.m., that same woman... Went to that same spot. Except this time she broke into a Coldwell banker office across the street from that Chevron. In that case, she charged a cause, excuse me, an estimated $6,000 in damage. This time, however, she didn't use a baseball bat. She used a metal pole. She's also accused of breaking a window at the South Sound running store. And, you know, this poor Jay Kim from the Chevron... He's like, oh, look, man, I'm just trying to do my job. You would expect that things might settle down a little bit after you arrest her. I thought at least a couple months or at least they're going to do something. No, no, neither, neither of those things happened. They didn't really do anything. And it definitely wasn't a couple months. It was almost what would amount to a, a couple days, but not even. A spokesperson for the Thurston County Prosecuting Attorney's Office said that this woman was released by a judge. Because officials determined she was not a danger to herself or others. Hmm. Well, that's obviously incorrect. A second judge, after that second arrest, ordered a full mental health evaluation for the woman before she can be considered for release. Now, Greg owns a business nearby. Greg is someone who takes a slightly different approach, I think, than I would if I was in a situation there. If it was somebody committing a burglary, that would really make me frustrating. But we have a mental health crisis in our community. Okay, so he's the owner of South Sound Running, so he's the guy who had his window smashed. I, I suppose if I know I'm dealing with someone who's mentally ill, I would find myself a little less angry directly at that individual. If, in fact, this woman is mentally ill, right, I, I, I can't I can't say that I would have 
as much ill will towards her than I would towards just, you know, your average bad guy who's breaking into your business. I would still be upset and annoyed and angry in, in, in a general sense. But OK, I'll give maybe a slight pass, at least as it relates to my anger. I would be, of course, the most upset with a city, a county, a state, whomever is to blame in this case. We don't have all the details yet. Failing to protect people. Failing to protect this woman who sounds like she's in desperate need of mental health care. Fail to protect the business owners who are just trying to get by. But now they find themselves in a position, at least Jay Kim does, where she's worried, she tells King Five, that this woman's just going to get released again and she's going to cause even more damage next time. I know they're going to release her soon. And if she's more mad because we caught her, nobody knows what's going to happen after this. Like, I can't blame her for holding that position. Because let's say she's in need of some kind of mental health care. Will she actually get it? Will she get it? Because we're right in the middle of yet another scandal from the Inslee administration. Although it's gotten so bad that you now have Democrats suing Jay Inslee via the Department of Social Health and Services, the DSHS. Because... The folks there who run things, they're not providing the necessary behavioral health services, the evaluations that they need to to give to patients. Patients in this case, we're talking about folks who have allegedly committed a crime, but they can't actually go to trial until they get their mental health care treated so that they can get to a point where mentally they can understand the charges against them. And it's causing one of two things. Number one, they're forcing the counties to keep people in jail longer, which is costly. Or they end up getting put in a position where a judge says, okay, we can't hold this person indefinitely. Let them go. Now, there is a legal obligation from the state to provide these services, and they're simply not doing it. And Inslee hasn't done a single thing to step in and lead on this issue. He's done nothing. They don't even talk about this. And as a result, it's forced these counties to sue. And again, we're talking about left-wing counties. Almost half of the counties in Washington state are suing. That includes Pierce, King, Thurston, Snohomish. They're all suing. Their first requirement is to evaluate them to see if further treatment is needed. And then if further treatment is needed, um, they uh, need to find a space for them because essentially they are the treatment provider of last resort in our state law system. Now, that is the general counsel to the King County Executive, David Hackett. They are leading this lawsuit. And he spoke with Como TV. It's their duty. It's their legal obligation to figure out how to get this done. And and you can't, when you have a legal obligation, when you have a court order staring you in the face, you can't say, it's just too difficult. I'm not going to do it. It's too hard. I can't do it. That's what Inslee takes a position on pretty much everything. It's so hard. I can't do it. Now, this part should terrify you. According to Como. County officials were notified that DSHS is planning to release dozens of mental health patients who are not ready for release. It's supposed to happen on September 7th, and they're going to do this to free up bed space. 45 of those patients are scheduled for release in King County. 45. Half of them, they say, are nowhere near ready for release. Now, question. Does that seem intentional to you? Because it does to me. Doesn't that seem intentional that... We're purposely releasing people who are not ready because we just want to churn people through the system just so that we can, you know, say we did something. 
Doesn't it seem intentional in the context of everything else they've been doing at the state level, Democrats? Where they have been trying to depopulate our prisons by releasing criminals early, by keeping them out of jail to begin with, by giving them passes, by putting them into restorative justice programs. All of that is intentional. Why would we not assume that this is intentional? Because it definitely seems like it is. Let's find out what else is trending. What's trending? The homelessness crisis. Well, consider me shocked by this Seattle Times story. There's a group called the Washington State Lived Experience Coalition, and they got a whole bunch of tax dollars to help deal with the homelessness crisis, oversee a shelter, a hotel, a homeless hotel with about 300 people inside, only to fail, fail miserably, run out of money, leaving about 300 people not just facing, you know, quote unquote eviction, but facing more time out on the streets. It turns out, shocking as it may be, that an advocacy group made of people with quote unquote lived experience, which just means they're formerly homeless or currently homeless. Yeah, it turns out they don't know what it is they're doing, that they don't know how to run or maintain a shelter. And then, of course, according to a new audit, an independent evaluation of this program, according to the Seattle Times, it was paid for by local philanthropic organizations that fund homeless services. They try to get a better sense of what happened, when it happened, why it happened. And they realized that there was pretty much no oversight of its finances for the Washington State Lived Experience Coalition. That they didn't communicate with its fiscal sponsor or the region systems that run homelessness services. But it goes beyond that in this audit. Because remember this, and we talked about this when it happened or when we first learned about the Financial failures here, $700,000 in debt they got into starting in, what was it, March? This audit said that pretty much everyone involved, anyone who had even knowledge of what was happening with this lived experience coalition, they're to blame. They're the ones to blame, too. They share the blame. And, of course, as we said at the time, that there's no oversight into these groups that end up getting money. We just hand it out. Because it's federal dollars, they'll continue to flow in. This report said that, hey, guess what? No money should have gone through the lived experience coalition in the first place because it didn't actually meet any of the guidelines for funding. Yet they got it anyway. Isn't that weird how it works? Now, this is just a draft report, according to the Times. It's in the fact-checking phase. They expect it to be finalized by early September Don't expect to see a whole lot changing in this report because at the end of the day, some of the particulars don't even matter, frankly. Seriously, they don't matter. In this case, the the small details don't matter because it's the big detail that is ignored over and over and over again. Whether we're talking about at the state level, the county level, the city level, there is a homeless industrial complex. And mixed in with that are lawmakers and decision makers who want to pretend that they are evolved when it comes to homelessness. And thus, they talk to people with quote-unquote lived experiences, another one of those progressive terms that kind of just popped up and started getting used in a meaningful way over the course of the last several years. We're supposed to believe that because they're homeless, they're the ones who are best suited to get people out of homeless because they used to be. Except, no, the fact that they used to be homeless is exactly why I wouldn't want to give them all of these responsibilities. Unless all of a sudden they turn themselves into a a millionaire. Why would I trust someone who was formerly homeless 
who couldn't keep themselves out of homelessness to fix an issue here. God bless them for actually getting the help that they obviously needed. But why would we burden them with this? They don't have any expertise in this world simply because it's like saying someone could be a radio show host because they listen to the radio or someone can host a TV show or write a movie because they watch TV and they watch movies. No, it doesn't mean that they have any expertise. You being good in trivia, for example, on on movies doesn't mean that you would be a good host for a movie trivia show. You might be a good contestant. And in this case, the contestant could be a consultant. Go ahead if you want to consult with some homeless people just to get a better sense of what might lure some of the homeless folks into shelter and get the help that they need. Okay, that seems reasonable to me, so long as you're not spending a ton of money on that. But at the end of the day, we know exactly what works and we know what doesn't work. We know that housing first model does not work. I write about it extensively in my book, What's Killing America, published by Center Street. That means they paid me. If you want to pre-order the book, I really, really, really hope you do. Just go to Amazon.com, Walmart.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Target if you want, and purchase What's Killing America as a hard copy. If it does well enough, we're going to do a book signing. But we know that housing first doesn't work. Housing first means we, like what it says, we're putting someone in shelter first, regardless of the reason why they're homeless in the first place. So there are no conditions. Meaning if you're an addict, we're just going to give you an apartment or a homeless hotel or a shelter bed, whatever it is, and you can continue to use. Once we have you in the system, then we'll try to get you to get the help that you need. But we're not going to force it. That doesn't work. The only thing that has consistently worked over and over and over again, regardless, pretty much regardless of where the crisis is, giving the person a hard time so they don't feel comfortable living on the streets, constantly telling them we're going to continue to give you a hard time. We're going to continue to move you until you finally say yes to our offers of assistance. And the reason why you have to do that with the people who are out on the streets is because the ones who are motivated, the ones who don't want to be there, the ones who are not comfortable living out on the streets, they're the ones already getting the services because the services are out there. The resources exist. The help exists. It's there. Those people are already getting help. We don't need to hassle them. But the people who have given up, the people who feel like there's nothing that can help, you know what? You're going to be a little bit tough on them. You have to. And every single time you don't do that, every single time you just give money to failed organizations that continue to fail and yet somehow get larger and larger budgets, you are doing a disservice to absolutely everyone who's living out on the streets. And of course, you're doing a disservice to the taxpayers who are funding all of this. Let's find out what else is trending. What's trending? Legal. Now that we have the Donald Trump mugshot, now that the left was able to, what they think, humiliate him, where do things go? What happens next? Is there actually a threat to the nomination or perhaps the opposite? Now it's a shoo-in. Joining me on the line, Newsweek editor at large, Josh Hammer. Welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure, Jason. What's your first reaction to the idea that they did a mugshot, which seems purely vindictive? Well, you know, Jason, I was eating dinner with, with my fiance and her parents, and I like, physically turned around my head at one point to refill my glass of water, and I saw the mugshot for the first time come across Fox News, and I couldn't stop staring at it. Um, it, it it's a moment that, you know, many of us who grow up, you know, revering the U.S. Constitution, flying the American flag, loving this country, 
just you know you you just don't think that you're going to see these things in your lifetime i mean it's kind of a stereotypical thing to say perhaps and maybe it's perhaps a little trite and well-worn but it really is reminiscent of you know these latin american you know you know third world countries sub-saharan africa it's just awful it's just absolutely awful it is a photo that will be remembered in American history, uh, you know, whether it's famous or infamous, I guess, depends on your perspective. I thought Trump was very savvy, by the way, to try to, to try to immediately fundraise off it mm-hmm. with his, you know, return to, to Twitter two and a half years later. But, yeah, I mean, talk about crossing the Rubicon. That is definitely crossing the Rubicon. That's for sure. What implication does this have, if any, on the election? Are, are we at a point where there's only so much extra points you can get for being the victim of uh, political targeting you know obviously his his poll numbers go up every time he gets indicted this is a bigger moment because of the the mugshot does he get a bump on that or has he already experienced all the bumps he's going to get well you know i think it was like an hour and a half ago a brand new poll came out i saw fox report on it and it was, it was a poll out of iowa i think it was public opinion strategies was the name of the pollster and it's kind of the first post-debate poll in in iowa which obviously votes first in the nation that we've seen DeSantis had actually a notable bump. So he yeah. he jumped seven points up. And Trump was one point down. He went from 42 to 41. But I, I don't know if that was post-mugshot. It probably wasn't if I had to guess. So hard to say. I, I mean, the, the, you know, the mere fact that he returned to Twitter, I mean, that tweet has probably gotten hundreds and hundreds of millions of views by the time your listeners hear this. So I, I presume that that's going to you know drive a lot of new fundraising for him. But yeah, at some point, I mean, you know, how, how how many bumps can you possibly get from this rally around the flag effect of sorts? But it's obviously a very good news cycle from a pure political perspective for Trump. It's obviously not a very good news cycle from a legal perspective for Donald Trump. But for now, it it, it, it certainly remains Donald Trump's race to lose. You know, you know, pending some things that still could change, but it's clearly him for now. Do you think it was a mistake for him to skip? The debate, I mean, just to that poll, again, it's one poll, but Ron DeSantis taking a a nice little bump there. He's losing maybe just a point, but it's all about those margins. And it's frankly, it's about where the voters go once a bunch of candidates start dropping out. So uh, from my perspective as, you know, a writer, you know, talker and just a commentator and just a conservative in general, I I was very disappointed that Trump was not at the debate. I think that he owes it to the Republican voters to kind of give his case, this notion that he doesn't have to give his spiel, so to speak, because he was a foreign president, because he's leading by a lot. I I think that's incredibly presumptuous and, and frankly, more than a little bit insulting, um, certainly to many voters who are not wholly and exclusively committed to their particular candidate. I mean, if you're even remotely on the fence, I, I really do think that you should feel somewhat insulted by the fact that he was not there. But, ha- you know, having said all that, having said all of that, from Trump's own perspective, I, I don't fault him, uh, especially kind of given the legal avenue. I mean, I mean, it's very easy to foresee a world where Chris Christie kind of gets under his skin on debate stage, mm-hmm. kind of goads him into, into saying something about one of his four criminal prosecutions. And, you know, anything that you say there could be used by a prosecutor. There's absolutely no reason why if he says something that's kind of self-harming that a prosecutor, Jack Smith, Bonnie Wilson or Alvin Bragg, there's no reason that none of them could then seize on that to uh, trump up charges or do whatever they want to do there. So uh, from his perspective, I I thought it made sense. The Tucker interview definitely seems to have 
generated some some decent PR. It seems like it was somewhat of a softball of an interview, I think, to put it mildly. So, I, I, from his perspective, I, I think it's justifiable. But you know, from the from, from the median Republican voters' perspective, it's definitely unfortunate that he did not attend. And I personally hope that he chooses to attend the next one. Vivek Ramaswamy got some. Uh, it seems like equal level of love and hate for his performance there. He's seen as someone who would be able to pick up on Trump supporters if, again, for some reason something happens, Donald Trump doesn't run. What was your take? Well, I am not a fan of Vivek Ramaswamy is, 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 is my quick take. Um, I, I've been kind of increasingly I, I, outspoken about that. There's been you know, a, a series of articles that have dropped, I think, kind of you know, impugning his integrity over, over the past week or so. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Back in the day, he took a Soros fellowship. He said that it was to pay for law school. This new article says he was already a millionaire when this came out. You know, now he's, t- he's talking tough on China. The guy was co-investing with Chinese Communist with Chinese Communist Party backed private equity funds as recently as 2019, 2020. You know, any number of other troubling data points. And you know, Vivek is ultimately not in this to be president of the United States. He, he has never criticized Donald Trump once that I'm aware of. He criticizes DeSantis over and over and over again, which makes sense because there was an ABC News article that came out this past Monday, which showed from a leaked conversation that Vivek had with kind of his close confidants of, of, of advisors before he announced, he apparently said that he was getting in the race to basically try to take away some of the vote from Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he's clearly in this as a Trump plan. It's some sort of quid pro quo. Not sure whether it's an explicit or implicit agreement there. But based on the post-debate polls and numbers that I have seen, it, it seems like his support has gone down. So, you know, he definitely has his fans, but it seems like he's alienated more people than he's won over which I think is, frankly, the correct opinion of him. Yeah, just very, very, very quickly, who's the biggest threat to Trump? Well, I think it's DeSantis. I mean, he has the polling, he has the operation, he's yeah. got a massive you know, super PAC, he's got the people on the ground in Iowa. So I think it's still DeSantis, frankly, as the biggest threat to Trump down the line. There you go. Make sure you're checking out Josh Hammer's stuff over at Newsweek, newsweek.com. Josh Hammer, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Jason. Listening to The Jason Ranch Show when we come back, The Big Local. KTTH.com. Olympia, Sammamish, Lakewood, Bellevue. This is the big local on the Jason Ranch Show. Bellingham, Kirkland, Zetown. Stories about you, not about Seattle. Hey, look at that. Look at the time. It's 4.30 on a weekday afternoon, and that means it's time for the big local. Brought to you by Alpine Specialty Services. They are online at alpineclean.com. This is the part of the show where we completely ignore stories coming out of Seattle. Instead, we focus all of our attention on the communities you live in and care about most. And let's consider this to be the back-to-school edition because we only have school stories this segment. And the first one, I think, is a good one. comes out of Sumner Bonnie Lake School District where they spent the summer break installing and testing a new and much better security system. This according to Como TV. They say every person without a key card for that particular school has to walk up to a camera. They have to ring a bell. The secretary at the school will be able to see exactly who it is. They'll ask to see identification, meaning you're going to be holding up your ID, your license, to the camera before they let anybody in. If you don't do that, you are not getting into that school. And by the way, they're going to get a snapshot of your ID. When I had them put their identification up, we do try to take a live snapshot of that. Now, this makes total sense to me. Yeah, we've been talking about this 
a lot over the course of the last couple of years, frankly, that you need to have a hardened school. You can't just get in and out easily. There has to be some security measures in place because you want to make sure that no one who's not supposed to be there gets there. In fact, there's a kid speaking with Sumner High School who says she was hearing rumors about someone who shouldn't have been on campus getting onto campus. There was like a rumor that someone had come into the school like that wasn't supposed to be there. I'm not really sure if that was true or not, but that was like the only time I've ever felt unsafe. Now, Como TV says the camera at the front door isn't the only one on each campus in the district. There are 30 inside and outside. Keeping an eye on more than 200 kindergartners and preschools at Sumner High School. They're saying, that, or excuse me, this one was out the, the uh, early learning center. And you've got these extra cameras because they want to make sure that, let's say, someone does get on campus that shouldn't be there somehow. Great. We're going to be able to find that out relatively quickly. If, God forbid, something were to happen on campus, because obviously there's no fail-safe and a student could potentially get in with a weapon, they'll be able to spot it more easily. And in certain circumstances, if necessary, police are able to look at the cameras when there so they can get a better understanding of the, the situation. Situational awareness. Environmental awareness. Principal Lori Zrulula, can't say her last name, she thinks this is a good idea. But we are able to see, to have eyes in the sky to see to see the choices they're making. Now, to me, this is a good idea. To me, this is a great use of money. And by the way, they put together this project across all of the schools, courtesy of the technology levy that voters passed in 2018. It was $30 million levy. And we're told that the entire system cost only $196,000. That's a really great use of funds. And on top of that, they have two school resource officers that work with the police departments there. And then on top of that, they've got 10 non-uniformed campus safety officers. So they're taking this seriously. This is what you need to do. And before I get some liberal rolling their eyes saying, oh, fine. Oh, yeah, this is what they need to do. They should have been. This shouldn't have to be necessary. The fact of the matter is, this was always necessary. You guys just weren't promoting it. This should have always been a reality. This is not like walking through metal detectors. This is not particularly onerous. And for the folks who maybe on the right say that this is, there's some concern about hanging on to the ID. Well, the system apparently deletes the IDs every 30 days. It just does an automatic deletion of the files on record. Ones at least that are 30 years old or 30 days old. So I think that this is a great idea. I wish more schools would do something similar, but maybe part of the reason we're not seeing them implemented elsewhere are that the teachers are busy threatening a strike. They're just too busy because that's what's happening right now in Camas and Evergreen School Districts. The first day of class is next week, but maybe not. They might be holding off because hundreds of teachers within the district are saying, yeah, we're going to strike on the first day of school. We just want an extra couple days, maybe week of paid vacation. We don't care that it's going to impact you guys. And don't worry, we're not, you know, we don't want more money. We don't want more money. That according to Kate Gooding, a teacher and union rep speaking with KATU Television. This was supposed to be an easy contract negotiation. Salary was never on the table. It's always been for us about the students. It's always about the students. I mean, except for the first day of classes that might get canceled because you want to stay at home. But other than that, it's all about the students. 
they're basically saying we have too many students in a classroom. That's their argument. They're not asking for more money. They just want less responsibilities <laughs> for the same amount of pay. They say they want more teachers. Of course, we've been dealing with a teacher shortage, an educator shortage, not just in this state, but in this country. A lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it had to do with COVID. Some of it had to do with the COVID vaccine policies. Others didn't want to go back into the class. And unfortunately, because so many parents pulled their kids out of their school districts, going instead to private or homeschooling. And I say, unfortunately, that's unfortunate for the school districts, not for the parents. They did it for a reason. They did it because they realized their kids weren't being properly taken care of, that they were being pushed with indoctrination, that you had teachers, unions trying to keep kids out of school. Parents who were in positions where they could afford to do this decided, yeah, I see the change in my kid. The emotional change, not even just the intellectual stuff, the academic stuff. I'm seeing my kid change before my eyes, depressed, unhappy. And so they made a decision where they could to pull them out of schools. What that ended up doing was leading to a whole bunch of cuts. Because schools get their budget based upon how many students are enrolled. And if, just making these numbers up, if you had a thousand students in one school and that was your budget and... 2019 and 2020 well you created a school you made the hiring to the point you hired to the point i should say to take care of those 1000 well if all of a sudden that number goes down to 900 or 800 well you have to make some cuts and i'm presuming the majority of these budgets go towards staff so you're gonna have to cut some bodies now maybe as a result of cutting four bodies you were able to get to the budget that you need to for 800 students, but that meant you have to disperse some students into other classes and those classes grew. That's just a reality. That's the reality. Now, ultimately, they'll get more funding, all these schools, because Democrats are in power and they don't care about the finances. They just throw a whole bunch of money into the problem without actually addressing the underlying causes of the problem. But the cuts had to come at this point based on what was passed recently in the budget. Superintendent Dr. John Anzalone defends them. The good news is we have a four-year plan to kind of get it back on track. And unfortunately, it had to start with doing some expenditure cuts, right? Just like just like a private business would do um, in order to get back on track and really get to a balance. So that's where they stand. Now, I've been checking in each and every day with our, I, I think we haven't made it official, but I kind of want to make sure that our friend Nolan, who is a student, a seventh grader, out in Kent. I kind of want to bring him on as an intern because he's just so incredibly eager. Meanwhile, we're stuck, unfortunately, with Duncan, who's just a jerk. Yeah, you're a jerk, Duncan. You see, he flipped me off again. He flipped me off again. We have a group of students that always just, oddly, they just decided to show up into the studio. I don't know who let them in. Someone should talk to Isaiah at the front desk. But these kids just keep showing up, and they're an audience, and I figure, okay, I might as well indoctrinate them. But this Duncan character, you're replaceable, Duncan. So let's check in with Nolan on day three of the Kent School Day. One of the craziest things to me is just going to all these different classes and learning very different things. I think that'll be a big a big part of it. Oh, he's still excited. He's still excited. Although there's some parents who are not so excited. There's a story out of King 5 about a school drop-off area 
that has some parents a little uncomfortable because that area, it's been the site of about 11 shootings, generally in that area. And so as much as these parents love the school that they're sending their kids to, as much as they love Sunbeams Sunbeams Lutheran School, they're saying we got to do something about this stop. Because Kent police said they responded to at least 11 verified shootings at this area. Because across the street from this bus stop is Phoenix Court Apartments. This is the apartment complex that the city is now suing to get it closed down. Because it gets so much crime happening there. Nearly 600 911 calls from that site since January. Kent police, according to King 5, say that there have been three homicides there. And so parents are pretty concerned about dropping off their kids or getting their kids dropped off there at the end of the school day. School administrator Denise Pasilli, she spoke with King Five. At our open house recently, a few families took us aside and said, you know, we'll pay extra for tuition if you hire a security guard. So I haven't seen any specifics as to whether or not they are going to hire a security guard. The story does say they spoke with another mom who seemed optimistic that this would be an interesting idea if the school would go for it. It's kind of a shame that teachers or excuse me, parents would have to get to the point where they're hiring their own security because it's so bad. You would expect that the school would be able to do it. But I also understand that schools are dealing with budgets, like we just said. And in fairness, the city is trying to do something by getting the Phoenix apartments shut down. Here's Mayor Dana Ralph. We um, are requesting that the judge intervene and require the ownership and the management to provide that safe environment. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a trial date until next August. Next August. Which is an absurdly long time to have to wait. Now, will they ultimately have to wait that long? Maybe, maybe, maybe the owners of the Phoenix Court Apartments will do the right thing. Maybe there'll be some move that can be made to fast track getting in front of a judge. I don't know. But in the meantime, you just got some unnerved parents in Kent. And and frankly, I'm surprised we don't hear more stories like this, not just in Kent, but around the Puget Sound area, because we know that crime is up. We know that that's an issue, particularly amongst youth. And I would if I had a kid, I'd be a little uncomfortable, certainly in Seattle. Having my kid, regardless of their age, be dropped off and picked up at an area that likely has a high volume of crime. So we'll see where this ends up going. I'm curious to whether or not they end up hiring some security based on the pooling of some resources by parents. 1-800-465-8770 if you want to send me a text. And I know you do because coming up next, you pick the news. And you can text me which story you would like me to tackle. Story number one, New York City residents erupt over new migrant shelter near schools. Should we stay on the school theme? This is a story from Fox News or story number two from the New York Post. The View host Anna Navarro's husband is roasted by fans over his, quote unquote, ghastly feet. So one of those stories will be a challenge since it's really going to lean into theater of the mind. The other one will be a lot easier. Which one will you give me on this Friday? 1-800-465-8770 if you want to send a text. You're listening to The Jason Branch Show. Pick the topic on the Jason Rand Show. Indeed, you do get to pick the news, and thank you. Maybe you you had you took pity on me on this Friday. Because you know how I love Fridays. 
You went with an easier story for me to cover. New York City residents erupt over a new migrant shelter near schools. This coming from Fox News, where hundreds of New Yorkers decided to protest this plan that turns a former school into a migrant shelter because the city is being overrun by migrants. Folks, we're supposed to pretend are seeking asylum for legitimate reasons as per what the asylum process is supposed to be used for. I I find it legitimate from their perspective where they want to get out of countries that don't provide for them the way that they should, provide them freedoms the way that they're owed. I would want to come to this country too, but of course we have a legal way to do so. There's a legal way. And apparently in this case, on Staten Island's St. John Villa Academy, you had a whole bunch of people who showed up and said, no, 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 no. Because there are multiple schools in this area. Why would you take this empty school for this? Have you not been reading any of the news reports, not just here in New York, but across the country, where you've seen an increase in crime associated with just housing migrants whom you're not vetting, whom most of all are most of which are single men, young single men. They've been committing crimes, not all of them, but a lot. There has been crime. We did the story last week out of Chicago. Where they saw an increase in prostitution, smash and grabs, all specifically because of the migrant shelter, which in that case was also a place that was protested. But of course, the people ended up losing, and I fear that the people are going to lose here. But you do have, at least in in this case, and as I recall in, in Chicago too, you have some Democrat lawmakers who are stepping up. Jessica Scarcella Spanton, she's a Democrat state senator, she's one of them. She was on Fox and Friends this morning and said, whoa, 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 this is not being used for what it's supposed to be used. So to me, this is another setback in giving this community an education center that they truly deserve. Most importantly, it's in an extremely quiet residential area and the residents do not want this shelter here. Um, They were actually out last night. I hear there was three to four hundred people who are still protesting as of 2 a.m. last Mm -hmm. night. Mm -hmm. So this isn't something that's going away. And I'm really encouraging the administration to utilize the relationships he has Mm -hmm. with the elected officials who know their communities best. And this is certainly not the right location for a migrant. there, There apparently was a large banner over the protest site that read no effing way. You know you're in New York when you get a sign like that. Now, the city ended up purchasing this academy after it closed back in 2018. They said it was going to be used for a school again. In fact, you just kind of heard her say that. But they never actually did anything. I don't know what got in the way. I imagine normal bureaucratic delays. And then, of course, you had COVID. I imagine that pushed things forward. But now they're looking to move. The city is looking to move 300 migrants to this school in the coming days, that according to WABC-TV. Now, the report noted that three people were arrested in connection with the protests. So these are parents who maybe got a little bit overzealous. Now, Mayor Eric Adams put out a statement, or at least his office did, 
saying, we located the vacant St. John Villa Academy to serve as one of our respite sites for single women and adult families. We understand community concerns and want to assure them that we are working to ensure the site is well managed. So in other words, yeah, we hear you. We just don't care. We're going to do it anyway. But Scarcella Scanton, the state senator, told Fox News, you still have time to do the right thing. Do the right thing. It's not a good place for a site, and it's not too late. They haven't brought the migrants over yet. It's not too late for the city to reverse this decision. If they could see what we're seeing on the ground, I know that they would know they would understand this is a poor location for these migrants. So in other words, she's saying, look, I know the area because I represent it. Eric Adams, you don't know this area. You've got some bureaucrat who's working for your office, probably some 23-year-old who made a decision, who did what was easy. They said, ooh, this is an empty spot. Let's fill it with migrants. The folks who are pushing back, they're obviously right to do so. But whether we're talking about New York or Chicago or Denver, where this was also an issue, you brought this on yourselves. Sorry. Not to dismiss the concern, because I do think that it is valid and I am sympathetic towards it. But you keep voting in the politicians who wanted to virtue signal their support of the migrant community because they never thought it was going to come to their footsteps. They never thought Mayor Eric Adams nor any Democrat lawmaker in New York or Illinois or Colorado While they were calling out Ron DeSantis and calling out Greg Abbott and at the time Mayor Ducey out in Arizona, when they were calling them evil for raising concerns about the open border, the few times that they even acknowledged that there was an open border, they were virtue signaling their support. Their end goal was always to keep migrants in these southern states that have been more red than blue or maybe starting to turn a little bit purple because this is them playing the long game. They want to change the demographics of these states. Ultimately, they think that folks who come into this country illegally, once they get the right to vote, which is an end goal for Democrats, they believe that they will end up voting For the Democrat Party, thus the stronghold of of sort of the red state of Texas is no more. Now it can turn blue and they can get an extra couple senators. That's what they view this as. Nothing more than a political strategy. But then finally, the governors called them on their bluff, said, "Okay, nope, we're not doing this anymore. You said you are a sanctuary city. Great. We're shipping them over to you. And so they did that. And ironically, because I mentioned Denver in particular, because and I write about this in What's Killing America, my brand new book that I hope you will pre-order on Amazon today. Again, it's called What's Killing America. Help me get paid per book. Um, they were just insufferably over the top, insufferably over the top about how they're a sanctuary city and they want to push back against Donald Trump's bigotry and xenophobia. One of the lawmakers, and 
I, I had to watch the video. I quote the lawmaker in the book. I, I don't remember word for word off the top of my head, but they were like, we were born for this moment to be here in this room on this day in this city to say once and for all that this is where we stand. Heroic to save these illegal immigrants, these migrants, something like that. And then all of a sudden when Denver started to get some migrants coming from we're actually not sure where they were coming from. A bunch of Venezuelans came from somewhere. They were bussed in. They never found out where. Let's just assume uh, it, w- it was from Texas. All of a sudden, they said, oh, no, 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 no. We got to ship them away. And then they ended up sending them to New York. And I believe Chicago as well. But the bulk of them have been going to New York. I just found that rather ironic. 1-800-465-8770 if you want to send me a text. 1-800-465-8770. You are listening to The Jason Ranch Show.